Good morning, everyone. I love that song. Thank you, Steve. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jude. Jude. I had the urge to say chapter 1, but if I said any other chapter, we'd be in the wrong Bible. Jude. We're going to read verse 3. Probably verse 4 too. Jude and verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it, found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Father, for this privilege to stand in the pulpit and to speak your truth. I don't take it lightly. Father, you know I've prepared pray, Father, that you would allow me to speak words that will edify the church. I pray, Lord, that we will have sober minds. I pray, Father, that we will not walk out of here without the purpose in this passage being in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for opening our minds to the truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In just a little over a week, we're going to observe a day, a terrible day in the history of America. A day where men in another religion flew airplanes into the Twin Towers in New York City as an act of war on a, on a nation probably they thought represents Christ I would beg to differ but it was an awful time I think it's instructive to know that what they intended to do is cause destruction in the United States and they only caused it for a short period I know for some families the destruction is forever but for the United States, it really didn't have lasting effect. There is another force that is working on this country, but they're not an external force. They are a force that's internal, and they are perverting the culture. They are perverting the culture to destroy this nation and it appears to be working. This nation has long ago rejected the God of the Bible. And the official point that that happened was just a few years before I was born, which was a little while ago, when they said that the Bible was not fit for our public school system. 
it's not surprising that it didn't take but just a few years before you saw that in the culture and you saw the degradation that has blossomed into just outright debauchery it's that internal it was effective because it was internal it wasn't an external attack it was an internal attack I bring that up because this is what Jude is dealing with here if if the external attacks on Christianity are rarely effective because Christianity is the truth and you attack the truth and you look like a fool so the devil and his demons have devised a more effective plan and that is an internal attack in fact if you look at verse 4 you see what Jude says here in verse 4 for certain people notice they have crept in unnoticed and when he means that he's talking to into the church they come in they creep in they sneak in I could give you verses left and right in the New Testament to talk about this sneaking in this 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 sneak attack if you will even though God's not surprised about this because he says for long ago was were designated for this condemnation so so God is not surprised this is happening. He's using this for his glory. And he calls them ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. And this was written almost 2,000 years ago. But it says pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. If we're not living in this time, I don't know. This is... This is, uh, this is today because the grace of our God is, is turned into some anything goes because we're under grace. And then it says, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Denying that Jesus' commands mean something. Denying what the Bible says means something. So I, I want us to take a look here at verse 3, though. We'll back up and look at verse 3 and see what he says about this sneak attack. Because he, he wanted to write them about their common salvation, it says. But he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. I don't know how many people I, I know in the church that think that when you... When you discuss biblical doctrine, maybe with a little enthusiasm, that that's supposed to be unkind. And I'm telling you what's unkind is to just let error continue. We need, he's right here, he is, if this is a command to contend for the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes in verse 5 that we destroy arguments. Do you hear the strong language? And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What the Bible says matters. It matters. Now there are things that are secondary issues that we can discuss and even debate. 
but that shouldn't divide us. But there are things that matter. The grace of our Lord, the gospel, how, what it means, how the means of being saved and who God is. Those things are worth going to fight for. It's worth it. Paul writes to Titus and in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, we, this, this man must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. How do we know what was taught? Well, it's in our Bible. That's what was taught. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and listen to this, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We are supposed to fight about it, if you will. It matters. We're to contend for it. It's a better word. But we don't just say nothing. We're commanded to contend. Now, I want to go to 1 Peter because 1 Peter tells us how to do that. 1 Peter chapter 3, which this church knows because you read the word every Sunday. You read a chapter in the Bible and just read first peter chapter 3 but i'd like to go through it and look how to contend for the faith in first peter chapter 3 and verse 15 here's what paul says i'm, I'm sorry peter says he says in your hearts honor christ as lord honor christ the lord as holy that is and no one no notice this always being prepared to make a defense. So the first thing about contending for the faith is you must be prepared. Must be prepared. Prepared for what? To, to, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, it says. So you must be prepared. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says this in verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. And shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Why? So that we know what God says. We must meditate on the word of God, church. You're not exempt from this. We need to be ready. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy in verse 1 and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. He says, and notice what he says after that. Be ready. In season and out of season. I can tell you it's out of season. If the word is out of season. Otherwise, it's, it's, these pews would be jam-packed. But it's out of season. And he says, he says it, be ready. He says, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we are, we are to discuss these things. 
and if necessary, reprove, rebuke, rebuke, and exhort, he says. So, we are to be prepared, Peter says. Continue the faith. We must be prepared. We must know the word of God. But look at the second part of 1 Peter 3.15. He says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So secondly, not only to be prepared, but be hopeful. And what I mean by that is your actions, your actions should, should demonstrate where your hope lies. I know a lot of people on social media, their hope lies in a politician. Getting the right politician in the White House. And while that might, while that might provide a little bit of relief, it is not the hope that we need long term. You can't force... Americans <laughs> to love God. You can't. What this country needs is a move in the hearts of Americans. They need to see light. They need to be told of the truth. So we are to be hopeful. In fact, we should be hopeful like Job In Job chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. So though he slay me, and what happened to Job? Oh my, lost everything except his nagging wife, right? But he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So, in fact, he says later in verse 14, verse 7, For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. There's the kind of hope. Even in adverse adverse circumstances, we should have the hope of Job. Though he slay me, I will hope. No matter what happens in this country, no matter what happens to us, we should have that hope. Because if you don't, people, why would they listen to you if if it doesn't even affect you? This reminds me of Abraham and Isaac. The Bible tells us why Abraham willingly took his son upon that mountain and and tied him and was ready to thrust the knife in him because he believed what God said he knew God said he was going to going to to be a, 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 his descendants were going to be a great nation if he so he thought to himself according to the book of Hebrews if he if he if I kill him he's must going to raise him from the dead that's the kind of hope that we must have the psalmist describes this hope, Psalm 62, 5. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. For God alone. There's where our hope should be, in God alone. In God alone. Not in, not in the military strength, not in nuclear weapons, not in 401ks. 
or is in the Old Testament, not in horses and, and might. Our hope should be in God alone. In fact, in Psalm 33, it talks about this, verse 17, the war horse, the war horse is false hope for salvation. For by it, great might, it cannot rescue. And that's, that, that's military. We think if we could just get the right political leader, we strengthen our military, we'll be okay. No, you will not be okay. The real problem is a moral problem. The real problem is a godless problem. What this country needs is Jesus. And the psalmist goes on to say in chapter 33, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. There's the real hope. So the fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, there's, fearing the Lord shows where your hope is. In fact, in Psalm 78, we read in verse 5, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God. This is where America has failed. This is, where we, this is what they failed. They, they, in, they stopped doing this when they said the Bible, not fit for school. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, it says, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So our hope, we should teach hope to our children. And so they'll teach it to their children. So they'll teach it to their children. So that their children will hope in God. The psalmist in Psalm 119.81 says, my soul, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. In other words, he trusts the promises of God. What God promises, that's what we should trust. In Psalm 147 the psalmist writes, verse 10, he de he delight, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, again, nor in the pleasure of the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Well, the question is, is how do you acquire this hope? How do, you, how do you get this hope? And Paul answers that for us in Romans chapter 5. He says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you hear that? We rejoice in our sufferings. 
He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, he says. Now that's hope. When you, when you believe God so much that in, in, in horrible circumstances you rejoice. Why? Because we know that this suffering will produce endurance and endurance will produce character and character produces hope. And he goes on to say, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope doesn't, you won't be ashamed of that hope. You won't be ashamed. In a later chapter, Romans 8, Paul writes this, For I considering the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. What, a, what an understatement. I can't, yeah, I can't imagine what it's going to be like, but oh, clearly, whatever we suffer here on earth for the cause of Christ will be so worth it for the prize that awaits. In verse 23, he says, We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, he says. Church, this is, should be us. This should be us. Paul continues a few chapters later in chapter 12. In verse 12, he says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Boy, this is, this is so practical. Rejoice in hope. Why do I rejoice? Because one day I will be in a glorified body, I'll not sin, and I'll be in the presence of Yahweh. In First Peter, Peter writes in chapter 1 and verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Has, is the Bible just not clear? Is it not clear? And if we, if we have that hope, genuinely have that hope, our lives are going to reflect it. And so when Peter says, be ready, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you. You'll have an answer. And your actions will, will be consistent with your answer. Because if they aren't, they're not going to listen. And they're not going to listen. So Peter tells us, be prepared to contend for the faith, you must be prepared. You must be hopeful. And, and here's the last part in 1 Peter 3.15. You must be gentle. He says, he says, be ready. 
Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. You know, this is easy to do. Generally, when people get excited and start yelling and name-calling, it's because they don't have the truth. (laughs) They don't have any other way to defend it except call names. We have the truth. We have the truth. I mean, I mean absolute truth. We have the word of God. So we can be calm and correct those who are in opposition to God with gentleness and respect. We don't have to name call. We just use the truth on them. Boy, the truth. (laughs) It's effective. And it cuts deep. And this principle is throughout the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul writes, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Are you hearing this? We've only got so much time on this earth. We should make the best use of it. What? For what? To, to be ready. To give a defense. For the reason that the hope that is in us. But then he says this in verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, he says, seasoned with salt. So don't let it be so gracious that there's no message there, but gracious but preserving, if you will. So let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So when you contend for the faith, And you give the reason for the hope that's in your heart. Oh, oh my, we have the reasons. We need to be gracious. We need to be gentle. We need to be respectful. But But the words need to be, the words need to be the truth. They need to be seasoned with salt. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, The Lord's servants, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, he says. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, he says. Why? Well, he answers the question. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the reason we're respectful and gentle and gracious is because we want them to come to Christ. If the reason is to win the argument, even if you have the truth, you're missing the point. You don't want to just win the argument. You don't want to just prevail. You want to convince them of the truth. And ultimately, it's God that's going to change their mind. But we should do this with gentleness and respect. So that's how you contend for the faith. That's how you do it. But I want you to see that he says this. He says, contend for the faith back in Jude 3. For the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't want to gloss over this. I think it's, 
important to understand that the faith was once for all delivered, it says. There are a lot of people, or a lot of groups that have come through the, through the centuries that have come and had a new message. You know, Joseph Smith with Mormonism, Charles Taz Russell with the Jehovah Witnesses, Eddie Baker, uh, and, and many more that have come perverting the grace of our Lord. But if we read the Bible, we see this. We see first in Hebrews chapter 1, how does God speak to New Testament Christians? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's all diverse ways. But in these last days, and we are in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, for whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. So God speaks to us, Through Jesus. The question is, well, how do we know what Jesus says? Well, it's interesting that the scripture reading was in 1 John today, because that question was answered in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, who's we? The, the apostles. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, he says. And so what he's saying there is we're the witnesses. We were there. We, we, we saw the manifested God. We saw him, we touched him, we talked with him, we ate with him, we listened to him. He taught us directly. He told us the truth. And now we're proclaiming it to you. And why? Why did we proclaim it to us? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here's how you know what Jesus said right here. This is, this is it. And this is, how, this is how God speaks to us today. Through this. Through his word. This is why this church is so particular to read a chapter every day. Because it's God speaking to us. And and to exegete the scripture meticulously. What does the scripture say? What does it mean? Let's not just run through it and get a nice good feeling. This is exegesis that happens in this church. And this is so precious. This is what we need. We need to know what God says. And some will say, well, how do you know what we're reading today is what was written? Over the past few months, I have witnessed to countless people have sat with them and talked to them about what their views were on God and, 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 and the Bible. And, and so many times I hear, well, we've, 
you know, the Bible, it's been translated so many times. How can you even know what was written? They don't understand. Well, it's, that's irrelevant, the translations. We have the copies of the Greek. In fact, we have almost 6,000 manuscripts. Now, they're not complete copies of the New Testament, but 6,000 partial and complete manuscripts. And they all agree. And we've found them everywhere. We have found them in, in all sorts of places. And every time we find, they agree. Yep, there are differences, but those differences are, are most, uh, the overwhelming differences are, are, are inconsequential. They don't change the meaning of the text. And where the differences are, they're not viable because we'll have ten copies of one verse and one, one particular copy says something wild, but the others don't. So we know what was originally written. We can be sure that what we're reading here is what was written. God has preserved his word. And that's just a fact. Absolute fact. If you want to study that subject more, just there's just no doubt about it. I would suggest to you get on YouTube and look, just search James White, The Reliability of the New Testament. And he has a program, about an hour and a half program that, that, that he, he presents in churches. It is just fascinating how well-preserved the New Testament is. Far, far well-preserved than any text of antiquity. So how do we, how do we know? The, the, the faith that was once delivered, it was delivered to the apostles, and they wrote it down. They wrote it down. In fact, we see this in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. It says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever does not Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do you listen to the apostles? You read what they wrote. And if you know God, you listen to this. That's all there is to it. If you're born of God, you believe what is in this book. Especially this one. This is the elect standard version. Thank you, Steve. That's a little jab at Steve. Anyway. And then he says this, by this we know the spirit of error. This is how you know what the truth is, the word of God. The word of God. And I, w- I want to show you, in, in just, just the, the, the New Testament speaks of this. The apostles received this, and then they delivered it to us. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what is also delivered to you, he says. I received from the Lord... Which is also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he gave, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, it says. And saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and often as you drink in remembrance of me. Isn't it, isn't, it's not a coincidence that Today we're going to observe what this very passage is saying. Why do we observe it? Because Jesus commands us to do it. And the apostles, they got this instruction from the Lord and they delivered it to us. 
In 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, in accordance to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he also appeared to James, then then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's what Paul's writing. Paul wasn't with the original disciples. Paul, born later, Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus. But he was taught by Jesus. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, Peter calls himself a witness. Or or Peter says, one of these men must be become with us a witness to the resurrection. What What he's talking about is they're replacing Judas, who obviously was foretold to be a traitor, didn't really believe and betrayed Jesus. And when they went to replace him, they had to replace him with a witness to Jesus' resurrection. So these apostles, these apostles are the witnesses. They're the ones that were there. In fact, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34... Peter, Peter said, opens his mouth and says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears them and does right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching the good news the, of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism, that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, he says. We are witnesses. In the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging on a tree, and God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not all to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, he says. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And to him, all prophets, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Even the prophets bear witness. And it's, it's not surprising that we learn in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 that the early church, they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Why? Why did they do this? Why the apostles? Well, because they received it. They're the ones that received the word from Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says, I delivered, Paul says, I delivered to you. Uh, uh, again, I'm going to repeat this. Of first importance, what I also received. I delivered to you what I received, 
he says. I delivered to you what I received. In 2 Peter 3.15, we say, I, uh, and count the patience of our Lord Jesus, or, or of, uh, the patience of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. Paul was given wisdom by Jesus. He was given wisdom. And 2 Peter 3.2 says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So the prophets, the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament here. That's why we listen. Because God delivered, God gave them gave the message and they delivered it by writing it down. And the apostles the same way. The apostles the same way. In Luke chapter 1 and verse, verse 1 it says, in so, much as, uh, uh, in so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And then Paul, Luke writes, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So these are the witnesses. Remember the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? How the, how the disciples were down in the dumps because the one they followed had been crucified. And they didn't know what to do because they had followed him. And that, that didn't ingratiate them to the Jewish leadership. They were wondering, have we made a mistake? Jesus incognito, the resurrected Jesus, enjoins them in says to them, oh, you foolish ones, you're slow in heart to believe what the prophets said about me. Shouldn't the Messiah had suffered these things? He says, and later on in verse 44, it says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened his, their minds to understand the scriptures and, and said to them, this is, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, he says. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, he says. I'm not done. I like to beat a dead horse. I'm going to beat this one dead. In John chapter 15, verse 26, we read about Jesus Sending, he said, he, his promise to send the Holy Spirit, the Helper. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He says, so the Spirit bears witness. But then he says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 
In fact, in Paul writes in Ephesians 2 in verse 19 that we're no longer, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the, the, the message is built on this. This is why your pastor stands in this pulpit and line by line and verse by verse goes through a passage. How precious that is. How precious your pastor is. Because that doesn't happen in every church. In fact, it's not common. And it's, I was going to say it's unfortunate, but it's worse than that. It's wrong. What we need to hear is what Jesus says, and we only know that by what was written by those who received it. And by the way, it's, I'll repeat that. It says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You know, even the Old Testament was delivered. I spoke a lot about the New Testament, but, but in Acts chapter 7 and verse 52, we read this. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Are they killed the, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Even the law was delivered by angels. In fact, Galatians says the same thing. Galatians says, why then the law? It was added, Galatians 3.19, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the Bible teaches that angels were involved in giving the law doesn't really explain precisely how that worked, but it's what it says. In fact, in Hebrews 2, it says, it says this. Hebrews 2, 1 says this. We must pay closer attention, much closer attention, it says, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is why it's important to stay in the word. Paying attention to what it says for for since the message declared by angels proved reliable, that's the Old Testament message, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was first declared, and listen to this, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So what he says in Hebrews 2 is, we better pay attention to what we've heard. And what we heard was first declared by Jesus... And then was attested to us by those who heard what Jesus says. That's what he says. And how did we know what they, how did, how did people know what they were saying, what Jesus says was true? Well, God bore witness by signs and wonders. 
and various miracles and gifts by the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So God came and gave the ability for the apostles to heal. And it's said that even Peter's shadow could heal. You're apt to listen to someone say that. Of course, the Bereans were still more careful. They were making sure no matter what, what signs and wonders they saw, they wanted to make sure it lined up with, with Scripture. And so they were examining the Old Testament, not to them in the Old Testament, but Scriptures to them. But the apostles, the apostles were the ones who received this and God bore witness to them by signs and wonders. We see this, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, where we read, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus, Jesus was healing, raising people from the dead. It's clear he was from God. More than one person in the New Testament recorded is going, you're clearly from God. No man can do this. In fact, there's one incident in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus, in verse 1, gets into a boat and he crossed over and he come to his own city. And behold, some of the people brought him a paralytic laying in a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, because he's God, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now that should have, been, that should have done something to the scribes. Because he just read their minds. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For it's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk. Man, I wish I could have been there. I would have loved to have seen that. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then looks at the paralytic and says, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the guy did. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God. Who had given such authority to men, it says. And this is not the only time the Bible speaks of this. In John chapter 14, verse 10, it says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, Jesus says. You're not going to believe. Look at what I can do, he says. In John chapter 5 and verse 36, the testimony that I have, Jesus says, is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, he says. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not 
have his word abiding in you, for you do not know, believe that the one whom he has sent, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You've got to believe. You must believe what this says. You must believe. In John chapter 10 and verse 25, Jesus says that, uh, that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, he says. So, New Testament, the New Testament clearly says the message was brought by Jesus, given to the apostles, and they delivered it to us by writing it down. And those people in that day believed those apostles because God bore witness with signs and wonders. Do you know that even in the Old Testament, Moses, Moses, God bore witness to him by signs and wonders? Did you know that? In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 1, Moses, he's asking Moses to go to, go to Israel. This is the burning bush incident, and he wants him to go to the children of Israel and tell them, I'm from God, and here's what God has to say. And Moses says, hey, uh, Mo, uh, Exodus 4.1, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, listen to what God does. He says, what is in your hand? He says, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a servant. And Moses ran from it. Very intelligent man. But, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And here is the greatest act of faith in the history of the world, I think. All right, maybe not. But so he put out his hand, and he caught it. Whew. And it became a staff in his hand. And he says that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, that the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put out your hand, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And, and God said, put your hand back in your cloak. And he put his hand back in his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And God said, if, if they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, they, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe the, even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. God gave Moses signs that he was from God. That's what God does. Today, how do we know then? Because we didn't see the miracles. We didn't see Moses putting a staff on the ground and it becoming a serpent and picking it up. We didn't see the apostles doing miracles. We didn't see Jesus raise people from the dead. How can we believe it? Well, the Bible itself has signs and wonders within it. 
What I mean by that, the Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah. You read, you read the, the, the Luke chapter 24 and those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus opened the Old Testament to them and told them what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And we've talked about this already. But he, the, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be killed. Not just killed, but, but pierced through his hands and his feet. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come to pay the sin debt of the world. The Old Testament prophesied when he would come, and he did. <laughs> Signs and wonders. No book can do what this book does. There's no excuse. Someone that says the Bible's just a bunch of fairy tales is utterly ignorant of what the Bible does. That's all there is to it. So, we're commanded to contend for the faith. We're commanded to do this, to be prepared, to be hopeful. And we're commanded to do it with gentleness and respect. For this faith that was, and here's what it says, that was once delivered for all the saints. Delivered once. And that's important. Because my Catholic friends may may, may, may or may not know this, but it's important. If you understand the Catholic Mass... The Mass, every time a Mass happens in Catholicism, and I don't know if my Catholic friends understand this or what, but the doctrine of the church is, is that the priest, the priest is literally pulling Jesus down from heaven and performing a bloodless sacrifice. Again. That's what, the, that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And so people get mad and go, you shouldn't talk about Catholics. It matters. We're, we're to contend for the faith. Because in Romans, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The Bible says once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, in verse 27, he says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. And he's talking about the Levitical high priest who went into the church, and went into the temple, and into the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And those priests first, it says here, first he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins, and then those for the people, since he died did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus doesn't have to do this because he died. He did this once and for all. That's what the big Hebrews says. It matters what the Bible says. The high priests, the political priests, they had to do it every year because what they were doing didn't actually save them. It pointed to salvation. 
The, the, the blood of the spotless lamb poured on the mercy seat. It was a picture of what was to come. And they did it every year, and they did it for themselves first, and then they did it for the people. Jesus doesn't have to do this because he is God in the flesh. He does not sin. He doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. He is the sacrifice. And he did it once, it says. In Hebrews 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things, that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He's talking about the tent was the holy of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, but this is better. This, is, this tent that he entered is not made with hands. And he said he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, Securing, thus securing an eternal redemption. It only needs to be done once. In Hebrews chapter, in verse 24, that is still in Hebrews 9, it says, For Christ entered in, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. In other words, those things pointed to the true thing. Those were just representations, but they weren't the real thing. They pointed to the true thing. He says, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, which to, now to appear in the presence on God, of God on our behalf. And he says in verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. So it was not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have... When he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once, it says, for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once, it says, to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. One last verse. Hebrews chapter 10. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And what he's talking about is the Levitical priesthood was done away with. The law, the covenant, old covenant is done, it's fulfillment. It's fulfilled. We don't need the old Levitical priesthood anymore. And the second is the new covenant that's based on the real blood of Jesus. And he says, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's contending for the faith. It matters what the Bible says. It matters. You can't say, oh, we're going to go, we're going to crucify Jesus again. 
The Bible says he offered it once for all. And the message was delivered once for all the saints by the apostles who were the witnesses who wrote it down so that we could know what Jesus says. So church, we don't want to get hung up on secondary issues, but the things pertaining to how you get saved, the things pertaining to who God is, and what Jesus did, it matters. And we're commanded to contend for the faith. We should be ready. We should be hopeful. We should be respectful. Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray, Father. I pray that we hear your truth today. Lord, the world, oh, this country needs to hear the truth. Let us, Lord, please let us. In the name of Jesus, let us bring that truth. Make us light in darkness. Use us, Father, to bring people to